all. Good morning, sisters and brothers in Christ at Willoughby Church. This is certainly not the way I had anticipated being with you today for this sixth of six sermons on the armor of God as we look at the helmet of salvation. But as it turns out, um, two days ago, I felt rather awful, um, sick, and needed to cancel a bunch of meetings with several of you. And then this morning, which is Saturday, I woke up and felt worse. And so after talking to Sonia Greitma, as well as the COVID-19 response team, or some of them, um, I went in for testing today and haven't got my results back. As a result, I need to isolate, which is what I'm doing. So you get the sermon today by video. And if you think it's bad for you, just imagine how much worse it's going to be for me because tomorrow morning, I'm gonna need need to sit here with my family and watch myself on video. So, Don't feel bad. It's going to be difficult for me too. But if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look once again and finally at uh, verses 10 through uh, the, the armor that we're going to be looking at today. And as it turns out, we're not going to be getting to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God and the topic of prayer. Um, So I invite you to reflect on those themes yourself. But beloved, listen to God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Today, we look at the helmet of salvation. About a year ago now, I started to learn something uh, that was quite new for me and that I found to be highly impactful super important, something that would revolutionize the way that I would look at other people and even look at myself in many ways. And I want to share this with you. I started to learn about the reality of trauma in people's lives, things that have happened to them in the past that were of a shattering nature or of a breaking nature and that had rippled effects all the way into their present life and are likely to have impact into their future life as well, because as I learned, this is the nature of trauma. I just want to give you a sense of this. There were three sources that I came to learn about this reality of trauma from. Uh, The first is from a personal source. I had shared with you that in August of 2019, my sister Yvonne, whom some of you know, along with her husband Mike and their three older children, Gina, Carmen, and Ian, they were out in a fishing vessel out in Bella Bella, which is uh, outside of Bella Coola on the west coast. They had chartered a fishing vessel of a friend of theirs called Jeff, and to make a very long story short, one that you already know, 
um, their boat started taking on water in very stormy seas and the sump pump or the pump, uh, whatever it's called, uh, broke down and wasn't pumping the water out of the hull and so the ship actually went down, they had to go overboard. Uh, Yvonne and Mike and the three, girl, uh, the three kids, um, two girls and a boy, they swam to the shore, um, to the shore, it's a little island about 200 meters away in cold water, nothing's on the island, um, and the captain went down. Yvonne and Mike and their kids got picked up by the Coast Guard who brought them to a larger uh, shipping vessel that was headed for Alberta, uh, Alberta, for Alaska. And anyways, as you can imagine, um, this was an incredibly traumatic event for Yvonne as well as for the family. Um, Yvonne got a call from Jeff's wife. Jeff is the captain who had gone down and Yvonne thought that uh, she would have known that Jeff had been lost at sea as it were <clears throat> and um, she had not known. So Yvonne also had to break that to her. It was traumatizing, incredibly traumatizing, um, shattering. Um, and I'd share that with you already, and uh, that's obvious, but what isn't obvious perhaps is what happened next, the aftermath of this traumatic experience. Um, Yvonne went back to work. She's a principal up in Williams Lake. She gave me permission, by the way, to share this story. She goes back to work uh, as a principal, getting ready for the school year. This was in August, so she's at work, and then something weird started happening to her. Um, as she'd go about her day, suddenly she'd be gripped by a choking sensation and she felt like she was asphyxiating uh, or being asphyxiated like she was drowning and literally had an incredibly difficult time breathing for two to three minutes. And this would happen to her, it happened once and she's like, well, that's weird and then it happens again and again. And so finally she goes to the doctors and they look for a physical cause and the doctors can't find any physical cause. So the diagnosis that she gets is actually Yvonne, this is a result of the trauma. And as she goes to start seeing a trauma counselor, they tell her it's not only that trauma, but Yvonne, as I'm listening to your life story, there's trauma going all the way back until at least when you were a teenager, when she um, came upon a very gruesome car accident and was the first responder there and helping um, at a very young age in a very uh, difficult situation. And it's interesting because the trauma from all those many years ago was still with her. It was kind of caught in her body, if you will. Um, the body was keeping the score and impacting her in the present time, gripping her in ways that she didn't even understand. We wanna forget about the bad memories. We wanna leave the bad memories behind, but we can't leave them behind. Or if we try, we engage in other behaviors or our body starts acting in ways that remind us of what we've been through. It's just, it's remarkable. Um, it was about that time as well that a second source came to me, Nick Ringma, who's a member of our body. Many of you know Nick, he runs The Last Door in Newest Minster. I believe Nick was highly instrumental in starting this organization. It's a drug and addiction rehab center. Nick had invited me to go to a conference in Newest Minster. Um, and there was two speakers there and they talked about the reality of trauma. And they talked about it from the specific angle of a series of study called ACEs. It's an acronym that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, ACEs. And this research was demonstrating that there's a link between adverse experiences you have in childhood, which is to say essentially traumatic experiences that you have in childhood and later outcomes in life. So they're looking at how these terrible experiences children can go through impact their life later on. And there was not only a correlation, but there, was a, there seemed to be a causative factor. 
And as I read more and more about this after the conference and learned some of the seminal stories that led into the research, it's very fascinating. And just let me give you a sense of ACEs because I think this really does revolutionize the way that we can look at people. And also further on, the helmet of salvation. So let me just share this with you a little bit, a little bit of a longer introduction today, but I think it'll have some fruit. So there was a man in 1985, a man, he was a doctor, Dr. Folletti was his name, Vincent Folletti in San Diego, and he was running an obesity clinic. A woman came to him who was 408 pounds. And she asked um, Vincent Folletti, Dr. Folletti for help and from his team. And of course they said, yeah, we'd love to help you and her success was fabulous. She went from 408 pounds to 132 pounds in 51 weeks. It was remarkable. She was doing just so well. Three weeks after she weighed in at 132 pounds, which was the lowest weight she had been up for a very, very long time. Three weeks after, she goes for a regular check-in appointment with Dr. Folletti, and she's 37 pounds up. Dr. Folletti said, uh, I didn't even know it was physically possible to put on that much weight in that short amount of time, but there it was. Within the next several months, she, got, she gained all the weight that she had lost back and put on more besides. And Dr. Folletti and his team were completely puzzled. What on earth happened? How can this, not only, how is it physically possible to put on that much weight that quickly, but also, what, what happened? What was the trigger? So Dr. Folletti went back to this woman, she was 28 years old, and said, you know, what, what happened? Is there anything that triggered you, know, you getting off the program and, and going back to food and all that kind of stuff again? And she said, well, there is one thing that I can put my finger on. It's I was at work and there was an older man there who propositioned me for intimate casual encounter and it made me profoundly uncomfortable, and I then broke the program, as it were, and have been ever since, but that's the only thing I can think of. As Dr. Folletti continued to work with her and his team in getting to know this woman, they uncovered that in her childhood, um, she had experienced incredible trauma because of actions her father had taken in a sexual nature against her over years and years. And she came to realize along with Dr. Folletti that um, food was her drug of choice. It soothed her, it helped to numb the pain, it helped to medicate for the pain. And also the other payoff to gaining weight in that way is she believed she became unattractive to men and therefore wouldn't be a target of their attraction. The thing that terrified her most was to be attractive to men because it would re-traumatize her, especially older men. You see the connection. Dr. Folletti and his team there at that point then took this case study and wondered if they could demonstrate it, that there was this correlation and causation from traumatic experiences in childhood and later outcomes in life, self-harming behavior. And what they have discovered over the last 30, 30, 40 years, whatever it is now, is that there is absolutely a causal relationship between adverse childhood experiences and the outcomes that you have later on in life. Self-harming behaviors, suicidal ideation, um, drug use, alcohol abuse, um, violence either perpetrated against others or putting yourself in very risky situations, all of these things were at an increase, substantially increased rate in those who had had traumatic 
experiences in childhood. Let me just give you a little bit of a better sense of this because this is it's so important. So they identified 10 areas of adverse childhood experiences that one can go through or traumatic experiences in childhood. So for example, one can experience um, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, which is deemed traumatic. They can experience physical or emotional uh, um, neglect in any way, which is also deemed traumatic. And then there's a variety of other kinds of things, like if you witness violence in your home, particularly violence against your um, mother, if you witness your mother getting beaten by your father or by another man, that's traumatic. If there is um, somebody in your household who is incarcerated, if there's substance abuse in your house, either of alcohol or of drugs, if there's serious mental illness in the house, so all of these things could constitute adverse childhood experiences, trauma. What kinds of behaviors in the future or outcomes in the future would this lead to? Well, let me share with you just a couple of stats. If you, you could have an, get different ACE scores, you can have an ACE score of one, that means you had one traumatic experience, or an ACE score of two, three, four, five, all the way to 10. The higher ACE score you have, the worse your outcomes. This is, um, now they've done tens of thousands of studies of different people, followed them through trajectories, knowing they had adverse experiences. Let me just share uh, some of this with you. For those whose ACE score is six, research has shown that they are 4,600% more likely to inject drugs. They are 3,100 to 5,000% more likely to attempt suicide and expected on average to live 20 years less than those who did not have ACEs. For those whose ACE score was five, the research has shown that they are 500% more, more likely to be victims or perpetrators of domestic abuse, 900% more likely to be raped, and orders more magnitude, more likely to experience unwanted pregnancies and multiple marriages. It's absolutely staggering, um, these statistics, that what happens to you when you're a child will cause you to engage in certain behaviors that are self-harming in so many different ways or get you into risky situations that put you into harmful situations. It's just remarkable. And this isn't to say that there's not human responsibility and all the like of that, but this is just the raw data. And it's rather interesting um, to take that in. And I'll, and I'll talk about how I respond to it in a moment. But the third source that I uh, began reading in was a book actually, and now that we're on camera, I can show you what it is. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. I read this book, which is an incredible read. Um, of this guy called Bessel uh, van der Kolk. As you can see, he's a medical doctor and he was working with veterans. And his, his real um, contribution to research into trauma is that it's not only that you have aff afflicted memories or affected memories that you can't get rid of and that you want to suppress and you want to not deal with, but rather your body itself, as my sister's example demonstrated, your body itself keeps the score. Um, and one of the things he says is, you know, um, it, it's kind of like if you run into a bear in the forest and uh, your body is filled with adrenaline and cortisone or serotonin or whatever other the drugs are, this, they give you energy, they make you feel exhilarated and uh, they enable you to either fly away, fight or flight, right? What happens to those who've been traumatized is that 
alert system response, that panicked response kind of stays in their body and is triggered very, very easily. And so it's part of what answers why there's more um, heart breakdown. There's actually all sorts of physiological responses if you've experienced trauma. And he deals with veterans, but he gets into childhood trauma and the like of that as well. Anyways, so, you know, I've been studying this over the last year and hearing about it and going back to this book and that kind of thing. And my response to it, friends, is like, oh, how fragile we human beings really are. How unbelievably fragile. And oh, how complicated we really are. You know, um, we may think that we know why somebody on the street or elsewhere does what they do, uh, do what they do, and be able to render a judgment about their behavior and stuff like that. And in some ways, of course, we can. But there may be stories there of stuff that we have no idea and we must say to ourselves, as I find myself saying, if I had an index score of six on the ACE score, um, you know, but for the grace of God go I. I can't say I wouldn't be on the street injecting drugs. I can't say I wouldn't be um, doing whatever, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, I probably would be, you don't know, but for the grace of God go I. And so it's so incredibly complicated, but also then I've just felt I felt a sense of despair, actually. When you think about, because one of the things that they show is, oh yeah, you think it's just a few people who have high ACE scores or any ACE scores at all. No, 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 as they've done the research, they realize that it touches, it touches every class of people, whether you're from an impoverished class or middle class or an elite class or whatever it is, these sorts of things that are utterly traumatizing happen to young children all over the place. And my goodness, it can make you feel a sense of despair because we, can, we are so intricate as human beings, and these things have such a broad impact on us that go on. The past comes into the present and impacts us, and I feel a sense of despair. And then when I think about the Christian story, it doesn't actually get all that much better because you think, okay, as Christians, yes, we believe that there can be traumatic experiences that people can have in their own bodies, in their own personal histories, but then also we believe that there's a generational kind of trauma that happens that goes all the way back to Adam, and so there's an original trauma in this world when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and were disconnected from the source of love and the source of life, and we have inherited that kind of rebellion against God and that disconnection from God, and so no matter who we are, we kind of come into this world with this original sense of trauma. An original ability to engage in self-harming behaviors in order to soothe ourselves in order to kind of medicate this existential pain that we might have inside or whatever. So I feel a sense of despair as a Christian about this. And then I also think, you know, the Bible also tells us that it's not only us humans who are in a state of trauma, but if you can imagine it, as Romans 8 does say, the creation itself groans. It's in a state of trauma because the image bearers of God are not functioning as they ought and the fate of the world is linked up with the functioning of human beings. And so Paul says there that the, the creation itself groans for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And so I felt a sense of despair about all of this. Like, my goodness. And then you add one more thing to it and you, you think, yeah, well, what about a text like Ephesians chapter six? And there's powers and principalities in this dark world. There's a devil who's scheming in this world 
And what he would like to do, along with those dark forces at his side, is to keep this world and to keep us human beings in a constant state of trauma. And or to use the trauma that we have had and the memories that he can bring to our mind in order to get us to engage in self-soothing, self-medicating behaviors, in finding solutions to our deep angst and problem that actually make things worse rather than make things better. As for example, you know, you might feel good in the moment when you're completely drunk and hammered or when you're totally high on drugs. Like someone on the downtown east side said, a woman, a prostitute there was asked, you know, why do you do heroin? And she said, well, because when I shoot up with heroin, it feels like a soft, warm hug. That's why. But it ends up taking our life away. And so when you think about all this stuff, it can be incredibly despairing. And the devil would love to keep us in these self-soothing ways. And so I feel a sense of despair. And I don't know if sometimes you guys feel that way too. It's like, you know, two inches forward, three inches back, one inch forward, three inches back, and all this kind of thing. And beloved, it is for this reason that we must now, as a final piece of armor, we must put on the helmet of salvation. We must put on the helmet of salvation we must remember and seek to make a part of our own bodies the truth about what God has done, what God will do, and what God is doing, this message of salvation. In terms of what God has done, the Gospels tell us and the letters of the Apostles teach us that Jesus has, in fact, already dealt with the trauma of this world by dealing with the sources that bring about trauma in this world, which are sin, rebellion, and death. If you think about the cross of Christ, I think it is entirely fair to think about it as the single most traumatic experience anybody could go through and has gone through in history. Not only was crucifixion designed to bring about the ultimate amount, the supreme amount of shame that a person could feel. But as Jesus marks his way to the path, he's abandoned by those who are closest to him for the last three years. He's betrayed by somebody in his inner circle. He's grabbed by a bunch of soldiers. He's beat, he's spit on, he's ridiculed, he's mocked, he's put into um, a false set of regal things. He's in, he goes through an inquisition before the high priest and an inquisition before Pilate. And then he's put on the cross itself, which is the greatest physical agony everybody, anybody could ever suffer. Talk about physical trauma. And then he's separated from the Father. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nobody has ever experienced trauma like Jesus experiences on the cross. And the reason is because he is taking the trauma of the world, past, present, and future, upon himself in order to take it out of circulation. The resurrection is the certification that the cross was victory and that Jesus has indeed dealt with the trauma of the world as well as with the sources, the causes of that trauma. Therefore, we human beings, we are taught, this creation itself, we now know, has a remarkably beautiful hope in the future where God will make all things new, where I don't believe that God is going to erase all our memories because it's hard to have a theory of individual personhood if you erase uh, all of your memories. But I think what will happen, and Miroslav Volf talks about this in one of his devotionals, is that what's going to happen is 
sometimes such great things of joy can happen that the bad memories from the past are perfectly overwhelmed. They're taken care of. They go away. But not only that, but our very bodies themselves will be healed. And so if Vander Kock is right in his book that um, trauma instantiates itself, lodges itself right in our own bodies, and that we probably won't receive complete and total healing from that now, we have a future where with resurrected bodies, there will be no more traumatized bodies in heaven's friends. <laughs> no more traumatized bodies at all. And so we need to put on this helmet of salvation about what God has done in Christ Jesus what God will do in the future. We have hope, friends, the prospect for the future are good. But then also, and here's where I want to spend the rest of my message talking about. We put on the helmet of salvation as Christians because there is and can be healing and transformation for us, for you, right here, right now, in the present time. Yes, it may be small. Yes, it may be incremental. Yes, it may not go nearly as far as you want it to go. But there can be, by the message of salvation, healing for you, transformation for you, for me, for those we come into contact with. So we share the message about Jesus right here and right now. It's not only in the past, not only in the future, but it can happen right here and right now. Well, why is that? Think about the nature of transformation with me for a second. What, what transforms us? What, what can we hear? What can we be told? Or what can we do that will transform us? Here's something that I have found in my own life and have witnessed in the lives of others that is profoundly transformative, on the spot transformative. If you have the opportunity to expose yourself to become vulnerable before a group of other people, to tell the truth about how awful you feel about yourself, your intrinsic sense of shame, the feeling that you don't make the grade, that you suck, the awful things that you may have done, the atrocities that you may have done in your life, the betrayal, how could you do that? You look back and say, how could I do that? If you have the opportunity to pull back the covers, become vulnerable in the presence of another, in the presence of another group of people without the fear of rejection and reveal those things about yourself. That can be healing and transformative right on the spot. Uh, Bessel van der Kock um, tells the story in his book here, The Body Keeps the Score, about a group of veterans that um, he met with and was engaged in group therapy with. And he said, you know, I want, to, I want to talk about what happened in Vietnam. These were Vietnam veterans. <clears throat> Let's talk about what went on there, guys. And uh, it happened to be all men. <clears throat> and um, one guy said, you know, Dr. Vanderkock, if you think that we're going to talk about what happened back in Vietnam, what happened to us, what we did, the things we did, um, you've got something coming to you because we're not going to share <laughs> that. And Dr. Van said, that's okay. You guys can share or talk about whatever you want to talk about, whatever you feel comfortable talking about. And what this soldier was referring to when he said the things we did, Van had given some insight earlier in his book. <coughs> Excuse me. Earlier in his book when he talked about a guy named Tom who was also in Vietnam his troop was in thick grass. There was an ambush. Everyone in his troop got killed in his platoon, except for himself. 
He, after this, went on revenge killing, went into a village, he killed women, killed children, and even raped one woman in her hut. He, all the while, he, his fiance was back home writing him nice little letters. And this one soldier in the group that was saying, if you think we're gonna share <coughs> those kind of things, you've seriously got something coming to you because um, they, nobody wants to expose that kind of stuff. In fact, Vanderkock would say that which traumatized a lot of the soldier, soldiers is not only what happened to them, but even more so um, what they found that they were capable of doing, the trauma that they were, they found they were able to inflict on others in any event. One of the soldiers then in the circle decided to talk after half an hour. And he talked about how his helicopter went down and the aftermath and the gore and all that kind of thing. And as he did and exposed himself and became vulnerable, then others in the circle also became vulnerable and started to share their own stories. And Vanderkock says it became quite lively. And the transformation that he saw there, there was healing right there on the spot. It wasn't complete. There was tons and tons of work to do. There were roadblocks to complete healing. Um, but to be able to share and expose yourself, what do we learn in the message of salvation? The first thing, John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus comes. What's his message? Do you remember? He came preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, of repentance. Jesus too said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first thing that we are called to do in the message of salvation is just to come clean, to be honest about who we are, about our shame, about the things that we have done, about the kind of screw ups that we are actually. And then we discover that we're not rejected for it. <laughs> By God himself, the most holy one, we're not rejected. And in fact, the message of salvation goes further than that because not only are we not rejected, but here's another point of transformation. You know, it's one thing not to be rejected when you expose the grisly truths about yourself, the secrets you want nobody to know, but it's another then to still be wanted, to be pursued as an object of love. This is quite profound. Despite our disabilities, despite our deformities that were pursued, that too is incredibly transformative. I love the little story about the boy who's walking down the road one day. I don't know if this is a true story or not. It sounds like it could be a true story. Um, he's walking down the road one day and he comes to this office building and um, there's a storefront and it's a pet shop. And in the window of the pet shop is a sign that says puppies for sale. And the boy goes inside and he asks the owner, how much for a puppy? And the owner says, well, it depends on which one you get, but they are between 30 and $50 a piece. And the boy reaches down into his pocket and he pulls out his change and he sees that he's got $2.37. He puts his money back in his pocket. He says, well, can I see them? <laughs> and uh, the owner goes to the back of the store and he unlocks the gate and in tumble these furry, fluffy, you know, um, teddy bears of love. <clears throat> and eight of them. And the eighth one is trailing behind and he's got a limp and coming in slowly. And the boy immediately fixes his attention on that one and says, well, what, hap what happened to that one, sir? And the man says, well, that one was born without a hip socket. And so um, it's going to have a limp its whole life. You really don't want that one, boy. It's not going to be able to walk very well. It won't be able to play with you. It won't be able to run. You don't want that one. And the boy was quiet. And so he says, but, but if you do want that one, I'll give... I'll give you that one for free. <laughs> and the boy 
reaches down into his pocket and he pulls out his $2.37 and he gives it to the owner of the store and he says, here's my down payment. And from the money that I make from my paper route, I'll bring 50 cents a week until I pay the full $50. I wanna pay the full amount for it, sir. And he grabbed up that puppy and took it home. Oh, to be wanted, to be desired, to be chased after. There's a story in John's gospel in the fourth chapter about Jesus going through Samaria. The text makes it clear. If you look actually at a map, um, Jesus was actually headed back to Galilee at this point, I believe it was, or to Cana. I think it was back to Cana. There was absolutely no necessity for him to go through Samaria. He goes through Samaria because he wants to have an encounter with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. She's out there in the heat of day when nobody should be out there. It's because she's an outcast. You see, as we discover later in this story, this Samaritan woman is a woman with a past. This Samaritan woman would be one that was not wanted because she, in that day and age, would have been thought of as spoiled goods. She's had five men who are not her husband, and the man she's now with is not her husband either. Yeah, she's a woman with a past. And Jesus knows about that past. In fact, he draws her to be honest about that past out. Look at the text. But he wants her. He desires her. He pursues her. He wants her to be reclaimed for the kingdom of God. Oh, to be wanted. To know that you're wanted like that. If that truth really seeps down into our hearts, it can transform you and it can change you. It can heal us. Maybe not completely, but to some degree. And it's more than that, isn't that? The message of salvation is not only that we expose ourselves to God and he doesn't reject us. It's not only that he's the mighty hound of heaven who says and shows to us that he wants us, but also, and how transformative is, uh, is this? Also that God is willing to risk his life for us. He's willing to change his own circumstances, to take a step down in order to make our lives better, right? To move from heaven to earth in the incarnation. He's willing to risk his life. Uh, Marva Dawn, I don't know if any of you know Marva Dawn. She was a professor of mine. Um, well, actually, she wasn't a professor of mine. She was an adjunct professor at Regent College when I was studying there many, many moons ago now. And I remember in one lecture that she was giving, I think it was an Under the Green Roof talk, she was talking about how she had been sitting at home watching the news. And there was a live news event, you know, special news event. They were uh, showing live images from a helicopter in California. There had been a flash rainstorm and the culverts were filled with rushing water. And the helicopter was capturing this cascading, rapid water coming down the culverts. And what the helicopter caught, the cameraman caught, that they weren't expecting is that there was a young teenager who I guess was either playing in the culvert, was unsuspecting about the water or jumped in, thought it would be fun, whatever. They were stuck, the waters were raging and they were going down with it. And this helicopter was catching all of this footage. And so Marvin Don said it was very, really quite dramatic. You're like, oh my goodness, you know? And people further down on the culvert started throwing in ropes. They started throwing in life, um, you know, flotation devices. The kid couldn't grab it. It was starting to drown. Marvin Don looked at her television screen at this point and said, there's only one way. Somebody has to jump in. If this person's gonna be saved, somebody has to jump in. And sisters and brothers in Christ, the reality for us is that God himself has been willing to jump in, to risk his own life as it were, 
God himself wrapping himself in human flesh, leaving the comforts of heaven in order to come down here and save us from the muck and mire that we find ourselves in. This is the message of salvation. And when that truly grips our heart that God himself is willing to change his circumstances from higher to lower for us, that can truly transform your heart. And not only that, of course, because God isn't only willing to suffer, but he was willing to go all the way to death, to go all the way to Golgotha. And this too, in a supreme fashion, when it grips our heart, can truly revolutionize us, um, can lead us to healing and lead us to transformation in the present time. Uh, there is um, a beautiful, true story that I had heard about a doctor in Baltimore who was dealing with very sick children. And one day, a very sick young girl was brought in. I think she was somewhere around six or seven years old. And she was in a bad state and was going to die unless she got a blood transfusion from a match very, very quickly. She had this rare uh, blood disease. Her brother, as it turns out, who was five years old, was the only match that they could find. And so they went to her little brother and said, you know, if you're willing to give a blood transfusion, then you can save your sister, Lisa. Are you willing to do that? And he said, is this going to help her not die? And they said, yeah. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And so they got him hooked up with cords, with all the, um, you know, whatever you call them. <clears throat> and they hooked her up. And as the blood was passing from his body and into her body, uh, his face began to go pale and her face began to brighten up and get redder. And... He looked up at the doctor and with soft eyes said, how long, Mr. Doctor, how long until I begin dying? <laughs> he had misunderstood what the doctor meant by blood transfusion and he thought that he was going to need to give all his blood. And you know, if we're moved by a story like that where this five-year-old boy thinks that by giving his blood, he's going to die in order to give his sister life. If we're moved by that, then how much more? Should we be moved by the story and can we receive healing from the knowledge of the story of salvation which says that God was willing to give all his blood to die so that we might live? But you know, friends, there's just one more thing I want to say here in conclusion and I know I need to wrap it up because my time is running out. But I think there's one more thing that's quite transformative about the message of salvation and that can lead to on-the-spot healing for us right now. Um, we're going to continue to struggle. We may want to say to God, I'm far too broken, you know, um, and that kind of thing. But once we know we're secure because of Jesus' work in the past, once we know that we have the hope of the future, we're receiving the healing of God in our lives today, God doesn't just say to us, you know, just live out your life and it'll be fine. You'll go to heaven when you die. And that's what you have to look forward to. But rather, he enlists us in his traumatic response unit, his trauma response unit into his triage. And he wants us. He gives us the greatest meaning a person can have in this world, which is to join him in his rescue mission to this world by being his hands and feet and joining him in healing this world. We may think it's beyond us. We may think that we're too broken. We may think that our past is too sordid. We're not yet there, that kind of thing. But you know what? We can make a difference. 
One more story, and I conclude with this. Some research was conducted probably about 40 years ago now. I'm not sure on the exact timing. Some research was conducted in um, the Chicago area, in uh, a very impoverished area of Chicago, on 200 young people at that time. They were still living with their families. And they asked them a whole bunch of questions. And then they asked the researchers after that, um, you know, what do you think that they will be like in 25 years time? And, you know, in terms of these children's life circumstances at that time, they didn't have the language for it yet, but on the ACE studies, they would have had a lot of, a high score on the ACE studies, a lot of adverse childhood experiences. And one of the researchers wrote um, something to the effect of, these kids don't stand a chance. 25 years later, they went back and they found 186 of these 200 kids. Some of them, they just couldn't find. Others had passed away. 174 out of these 186 kids blew the researchers' expectations away. They couldn't believe what they found out. They were successful doctors, lawyers, businessmen, had families of their own, and by all metrics were doing very, very well. And the researchers couldn't figure it out. And so they went and they asked them and they said, you know, what happened <laughs> that things turned out so well for you? To be honest, we hate to say this, but we didn't think it was going to go very well for you. So what happened? And the kids all gave the same answer. They were all from the same area in Chicago. And they said, you know, there was this school. And in that school, there was this teacher. And they identified the same teacher. There was a teacher and she made all the difference. And the researchers were flabbergasted by the influence that this one teacher had had. And so they tracked her down and she was at a very advanced age at this point. And they went to her and they said, you know, we did this research and we talked to these students and they said, it was you, you, you made the difference. You know, what was your secret? What was your recipe? What did you do? She said, you know, it was really very simple. I just loved each one of those students right where they were and just did what I could. That's it. I didn't have a special recipe. I just loved those kids the best that I could possibly do, given what I had at the time. <laughs> and sisters and brothers in Christ, the same is true of us. The same is true as any one of us. We can just love people in their particularity, right where we find them, on our street, in our home, around us, and just try to make a difference one person at a time by genuinely loving the person that is in front of us. And just doing what we can in the name of Jesus Christ, sharing the message of salvation in appropriate ways, in context-sensitive ways. And may God give us the strength to do this as he fits the helmet of salvation in our head, reminding us that the trauma of the past is taken care of by Jesus, reminding us that the prospects for the future for us are good, that we have hope, that he would also enable us to fit the helmet of salvation on other people as we extend to them the love of God in Christ Jesus. May God give us strength and may God be glorified as we do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.